Birth, the Forgotten Feminist Issue podcast was founded by me, Alicia Staines, maternal health lobbyist, birth nerd and mother of five. I share evidence-based research along with reflections from women who've birthed, researchers, fellow lobbyists and other maternal health professionals. I want to change the culture around birth and maternal health care and I want to get women inspired to embrace birth and motherhood in the feminist movements. If you find value in the work I do and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a Patreon of this podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash Alicia Staines. Welcome to episode 30 of Birth the Forgotten Feminist Issue. Today with me I've got Dr. Rachel Reed. She's an author and midwife. She spent a long time as a midwifery lecturer at university as well and you've taught in, uh, not taught, but you, you've been practising as a midwife previously in the UK as well as Australia and I know I've listened to you speak about quite the contrast between the two maternity systems. One of the fascinating things that I found in your book Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage was the history of birth which a lot of us I don't think understand that birth was not always considered such a medical event and something done to women it was a ceremonial practice. Can you describe a little bit about that ceremonial practice and perhaps what led to the demise of the sacredness around birth? Yeah, well, I would I would argue it's still a ceremonial practice, but I'll come back to that. So um, Adrian Wilson kind of coined this, the ceremony of birth in his writing. I think he did a PhD, he, did, he wrote a book about it. Um, and it was very much about um, the ceremony of childbirth in Europe in the Middle Ages. That's kind of where he focused. And I used a lot of that in my book, but it's happened globally. You know, childbirth has always been much more than, you know, a woman physically getting a baby from inside to outside. Um, it's always been a rite of passage and a shift for the community as well as the new person entering the community, a woman taking on a new status. Um, and there was a really elaborate, I guess, ceremony around childbirth that was very much the collective culture of women and was maintained by women. So it's, you know, in Europe and pretty much across the globe, secret women's business. And it would be overseen, and that's the word that was used by the midwife, um, who would have a very particular role, but the woman would be supported primarily by her women folk. So her sisters, mother, and the other women in the community would come together during the birth to support the woman. And the midwife's job was kind of a little bit more like an obstetrician, I guess, in that she would very much understand physiology and how to promote physiology and would step in if needed, if it deviated and there was interventions needed. But these women would come together and spend, you know, hours and hours with the woman in childbirth. And there were certain things that had to be done, like, you know, depending on where the birth was taking place in terms of, you know, closing up the doors and, you know, and plugging up the keyholes so the evil couldn't get in. There's all these other things that went on. And, you know, the lying in period was then another you know, part of the ceremony where there was these real distinct phases. So it was quite a complicated ceremony. And really, and this is why I wrote the book, everything that happens around a woman during her labor and birth um, reinforces the cultural values and what it is to be a woman. So that was very much around the collective culture of women and women holding other women in this transition and caring for each other. 
And we still have ceremony, it's just a very different ceremony. We don't see it because we think ceremony is something that happens in others, you know, other worlds or other countries or other times. And it's deeply ceremonial, our childbirth rite of passage in the modern context. It's just very different ceremony transmitting very different messages. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, some of the stuff you've written, um, so, I mean, it's controversial to some. I really enjoy it because you are very good at deciphering the evidence and making it very clear for, I guess, midwives, but particularly consumers or women to understand some of the content on induction of labour, big babies, um, the perennial tear bundle recently, um, but also gestational diabetes, um, which is a big one that I hear from women. Um, I think we perhaps the new crisis might be the perennial tear bundle, but there was a stage a few years ago that it seemed to be like every second woman was being diagnosed with gestational diabetes. We also see as a result, I believe, of this is really high induction of labour rates for low-risk women. And in Queensland, that's about 43%. How much, or maybe you could explain the testing and why the medical system imposes these tests on women, um, but how much do you think the changes to the way women are tested has impacted on this? And perhaps why else do you think that there is, I think, an overdiagnosis of gestational diabetes? Yeah, so it, it changed. So now gestational diabetes, or you know, the label of, is the main reason for induction now in Australia. So that's it's gone from post dates. Most women don't even get to post dates. You know, we're inducing now for primarily gestational diabetes and everything else. You know, and they keep adding it. You know, like hair color, height. There'll be all the all these other things will get added. Yeah, in. no, that's right. Um, <laughs> Every year there's new new reasons to induce. And again, you know, this just reflects the underlying values and messages that we're transmitting to women. This is the ceremony of childbirth. The ceremony of childbirth now is the underlying messages that women's bodies are really dangerous and need to be controlled and managed by medicine, which is quite rational and, you know, can manage the wildness of the woman's body and we start that very early on and, and women become by the time they're birthing their babies really reliant on external experts to, to tell them about the well-being of their baby and one of the tests that we do is you know gestational diabetes test which we don't actually do in every country so in the UK when I practiced there you only got tested and I think it's the same now if you had risk factors so if you had just diabetes in your family, um, there was a whole range of risk factors that you would then offer a test for. And, and we really rarely saw gestational diabetes. It was like if a woman was in hospital having a baby with gestational diabetes, we were all freaking out going, oh, where's the where's the policies? We, did, we could, didn't. We were so unused to it. It was a massive deal. And, you know, you'd even get one of because when I worked in a hospital, you'd have kind of support midwives for high risk and support midwives. This is hilarious for low risk. Um, I was one of the support midwives for promoting water birth and, and physiological birth in the hospital setting. So I would get called in for midwives who were freaking out about water birth. Would you call in one of the high risk midwives to help you with gestational diabetes? Because like, what the hell do I do? Because you rarely came across it. And now it's every other woman. Um, so what they did was, so in Australia, they screen everybody. And then they dropped the threshold for what gestational diabetes is. And they dropped it to, the reason that they dropped it was the HAPO study, which looked at outcomes 
relating to different levels of blood glucose. And the reason that they picked the level they did was that that was the level where the baby would be, now I'll have to read this because it's confused. It's confu okay, the thresholds were based on the average blood glucose level value that increased the odds of a baby being 1.75 times, being large by 1.75 times. So they they created this number based on the size, the potential size of the baby according to risk of the baby being big. And that threshold might reduce the size of babies, but there isn't any evidence that that threshold reduces the adverse outcomes. Yes, and and that's one thing that is often not explained. Well, it's never explained to women, and this is why they have such a hard time making proper informed decisions because things like this are never explained um, to women in so much detail that whilst they might have a bigger baby, doesn't mean they're going to have a bad outcome from that bigger baby. No, and four kilos. I mean, when I was doing home birth in Australia, pretty much every baby was over four kilos. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say, most. Of, I've had five and most of mine have been over four kilos. <laughs> yeah, because healthy, well women, the kind of women who are resourced enough to pay for home birth, have healthy babies, you know, and they're good-sized babies, um, you know, compared to the group of women I cared for in the UK who were really socially disadvantaged, there was lots of growth restricted babies, small babies. So, you know, it's about it's about the woman and a healthy, well-fed woman will generally produce a healthy, bigger baby, um, which is four kilos or more. So with these new parameters and the lowering of the testing rate, more women are being diagnosed with gestational diabetes, um, not necessarily the case. But how does this then change the trajectory of their treatment? Because I often see women induce cascade of intervention emergency caesarean. Yeah, and that, that is what happens. So once you've been had the label applied of gestational diabetes, which is easy to get because the thresholds are so low, they're lower than what would be expected when you're not pregnant. Which is um, ridiculous. Lots, lots, yeah, so lots more women are now getting the label. Once you've got the label, you're now categorised as high risk um, and you're treated very differently. You're set off down that track of, you know, monitoring your blood sugars, you know, induction of labour offered, at, which is interesting because actually if you, if you, in inverted commas, control your blood sugars, if you have normal blood glucose levels, then a lot of the international guidelines say you shouldn't actually be induced. Because the problem isn't the label, it's abnormal blood glucose levels is, is a problem. If they are too high, there is a problem in that it, sh it alters the growth of the baby so that the baby has, you know, fatter shoulders um, and the baby will possibly have hyperglycemia after birth because it's so, you, you know, it's, insulin is so high managing the high maternal blood glucose levels that it will have a drop because it'll still be producing high insulin but won't be getting all of the sugar after birth. So those are kind of the things to think about, that genuine high blood glucose levels in pregnancy do cause changes that can increase the chance of complications, um, but not necessarily every time, but they increase the chance. So that's what we're trying to stop. So I would like, I'd really ideally like people to stop going on about gestational diabetes and instead look at healthy eating and lifestyle for pregnant women, you know, well-being rather than, you know, saying you've got a label, so you have to do this. How about all women are supported to eat well and to maintain their health? 
So yeah, once they're on that trajectory, then really it is the whole big baby induction thing, which you can't tell if there's a big baby or not by a scan, but then that's often used to add weight to the idea that the baby needs to come out because it's all going to be really dangerous if you wait. Yeah, and women, like I mentioned earlier, are never explained this situation and, and how it came to be and then the risk of induction, which I don't know a woman who has been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, and this is just anecdote, that's then actually gone on to have a big baby or a baby that's ended up with issues with its sugar levels after birth either. So despite these women being told of all these risks, and, and a lot of them are only just testing over this threshold, and they might only test once, and they can monitor their blood sugar levels for two weeks and nothing else shows up, yet they're still slapped with this label, um, which seemed really incorrect. But then they don't realise, I guess, the risks then of that label, but then, you know, the induction at 39 weeks and, and that cascade of intervention that then follows. And a, and a baby that often wasn't even ready to be born and that was born early, forced out. Which also increases the risk of blood sugar issues with the baby if they're born too early. So, yeah. But I think more than that, what, what we're doing is we're actually undermining the woman right at the beginning. What we're saying is that your body is not a good place for your baby to be, that you're doing something that's dangerous for your baby. Um, and, you know, you need to follow our instructions in order to not be doing that. And we'll, we'll help save your baby from your body. You know, the, what is that doing to women as they step into motherhood, having been labelled the, the danger? Yeah, absolutely. Undermines their intuition, their abilities, you know, their instincts, everything, and, and their confidence. And absolutely, if that's the foundation that they've had for motherhood, their self-talk is, yeah, that they're, they're a source of... Um, not uh, like not a safe space for their baby. Um, absolutely. Why else do you think um, induction's overused in Australia? Because f- there's no way 43% of our healthiest, healthiest women and babies should be being induced like they are. Well, it, it just reflects the birth culture, doesn't it? If you've, if you've had a birth culture that's set up on the foundation, so when birth moved from the ceremony of birth into hospital, women lost their female support people and midwives moved from, and you know, that's a whole long story about how midwives ended up being basically uh, taken down and then rebuilt into the, into the medical system. And then midwives were now working for the medical system, not for the community or the woman. And primarily they were employed and that just completely shifted practice and then shifted the messages that women were being giving. No, this is a this is a time when women were being put into twilight sleeps, where babies were being literally removed from their bodies while they were unconscious during a you know basically an operation, um, and that's so our modern maternity system. The roots of it were that the roots of it were women coming into a system with medicine delivering their baby, midwives working for that system, and based on the premise that women's bodies are dangerous and dirty and need to be controlled and medicine has the answer because birth is dangerous to a certain extent. You know, that it's a dangerous transition for mother and baby. Some women and babies do die. So because of that, we have this system that's set in place that its intention is to eliminate all risk, but their perception of risk is that it comes from inside the woman. 
which sometimes it does, but actually now the risk is coming from outside the woman and the things that we do to the woman. That's, that's the system we're in at the moment. So induction is just an element of that, you know, that we're seeing more and more induction because we consider women's bodies a dangerous place to be and for all kinds of different reasons. And because the perception of risk is about, you know, it's, it's perceived very differently to an individual's perception of risk. So it's a generalized perception of risk. So rather than, you know, the increased chance of a hysterectomy because you've had an induction and then have a cesarean or the increased risk of a hemorrhage or the increased risk of childbirth trauma, we're looking at this teeny tiny general increased risk of stillbirth often with gestational diabetes there isn't an increased risk of stillbirth let me just say so that's not the reason um but that is for post dates that but we're talking about less than one percent naught point naught whatever in populations of women who are birthing in hospital because that's the only populations that they're studying big scale so we're looking at these teeny tiny risks of a catastrophic event like a stillbirth and then putting an intervention in place that has all of these other risks that are way more likely to happen. Um, but we don't see that as a risk because we're saving these this 0.03% of babies. Um, and that's how the system sees risk is the safety of it. The safety is about the risk of death for a very, very, very small minority. So we'll apply an intervention to all in order to prevent that. And we see that in you know, we see that in all elements of medicine, don't we? That we do these blanket things to a general population for a really, really tiny risk for one or two people. Yeah, and for those who may not have listened to previous episodes, we have talked about then the link between um, the overuse of intervention and, and particularly the high birth trauma rates. And then on the other side of that, we've got in almost every case of postnatal depression and anxiety, birth is a contributing factor, yet that is never weighted at all in these things that are done to women, like the physical things, the emotional aspect is is never considered, or, or I'd say in most cases it's not considered at all. No, because it's about the having a safely delivered, and I use that word in purposefully yeah like child yes inverted commas <laughs> safety yeah. because safety is the physical not necessarily the emotional um it also so should be worth noting that we actually haven't successfully reduced stillbirth in this country for 20 years no. despite no i mean you, you would have the data because i sh- saw you sh- share some things the other day that in was it a 20-year period the induction rates probably doubled um cesarean rate and yet stillbirth rate no but yet that's often used for women. Um, you know, the, the the dead baby card is often what it's referred to by women is, yep, had the dead baby card. You know, if you don't get induced, your baby's going to die. Where no one can guarantee that. But certainly it's not looking at the broader picture or that woman's individual circumstances. I have had very long gestation with all of my children. Um, I managed to be induced just once, but... Um, I can see how in the system, how easily it can happen to women because the way women are spoken to, and you mentioned it earlier, like that we are the source of risk for the baby. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and and we're not prepared to have any, if it's not, it's not based on individuals. So the system is based on a general risk. It's really not tailored for individual women. 
you know, if we, if we go back to the Middle Ages with the ceremony of childbirth, it was centered around that woman. And yes, there was always risk in childbirth. That's why the midwife was there. I think midwives forget that we were actually there because of the risks of childbirth. Um, but it was centered around the woman. And if the, and the midwife was answerable, not just to the woman, but to the community, because she wouldn't get hired if, you know, she didn't, if she was causing trauma for every woman that she cared for, she wouldn't get hired. But now we work in a system and our allegiance is often we feel to the system and we won't see a woman again. So we're looking after this woman for maybe a 12 hour shift, sometimes an eight hour shift and job is well done if mother and baby survive, tick. We don't think about, well, what happens when mother goes home with baby and when she's in a deep depression six months later and not interacting with the baby, which impacts on the baby's mental health. Nobody's, that's not, a, that's not factored in because those risks don't come back to the institution. So the institutions have to report on hemorrhage rates, you know, stillbirths, maternal deaths, all the big stuff, the physical big stuff. They don't have to report on mental health because it's, they don't see it. So if a woman has, you know, some major mental health issues she'll go back into a different system she'll go through a gp and into the mental health system and that doesn't impact on the hospital that she gave birth in they don't collect that no and and in most situations they don't even ask about the woman's experience there is no like routine birth satisfaction surveys at all in this country i mean there's a few pockets of it and a few studies that have been done afterwards um but there's no I mean, if, if only it was collected like it is on every other bit of physical data, we would have some, I mean, basically the anecdote would be reflected in the data that's being collected. And, and I'm sure that we would see as the intervention and the continual testing that women go through as it continues to increase, that we're not improving birth satisfaction. In fact, birth trauma rates, I think, will continue to rise and then yeah, on the so other still side birth rates yes it, as you say it's not actually improving the things that we're trying that the system is allegedly improving all we're seeing is increasing interventions every year every year i have to when i was teaching midwifery every year i get the first year students to go and get the australian mothers and look at the data and we talk about the stats and so i had to look at them every year every year it's went up jumped up a few percent every intervention and you know the outcomes didn't change so we're not and we're not measuring the outcomes of the intervention so all we can see is this increasing intervention and no improvement and yet it just continues year on year year on yeah and and in the 90s i believe the cesarean rate was around 20 percent, and everyone was shocked then now depending on what yeah. stay like i mean it's around about the same but queensland's 36 percent WA's 37 and everything is trending up. There's not even, uh, like, nothing's plateauing even. No, no. When I worked in the UK, I worked in a um, high-risk regional referral unit. So this was like, you know, anything that was high, that was complicated would get transferred in. So we, our population was, a, you know, there was lots of low-risk women as well coming in through the community, but it was a referral unit for high-risk. And the cesarean section rate was 21%. Yeah, and that's a population of women who, you know, more of them would have needed yes. a cesarean. Yeah, exactly. And when medicine's applied when it should be, that's when we have the best outcomes. Um, and it's interesting you say that. And I know um, 
like private midwives, th- their data is comparable. I, I mean, you've got to factor in that most women have to pay, so so there is a cohort that can't access it. But they do see, even though it's more affluent women, they do see extremely high-risk women. And some of the data I see there is, you know, like less than 10% cesarean rate. Yeah, because you're approaching it from a very different perspective. You know, I'd, I looked after a woman who very clearly after the birth had gestational diabetes, hadn't been tested during <laughs> during her pregnancy, but, you know, afterwards it was, she had a um, shoulder dystocia that she actually sorted out herself. Huge baby compared to her last baby, like 4.6 kilos. And very obviously just looking at him, he was a gestational diabetic baby, you know, the fat was at the, the top and he was... Um, but I didn't know because we hadn't tested for it. And she just intuitively actually managed that baby getting stuck. And then afterwards, you know, we talked about, okay, so he looks like he's had a lot of sugar while he was in there. <laughs> so let's talk about making sure that he's getting lots of colostrum and looking for signs of if his blood sugars drop. And she managed that fine. Whereas if she'd been tested, it would have been a whole different Oh, or even in hospital afterwards, they would have separated the baby and then, like, just that routine separation is blows my mind as well. Um, can we talk about the role of midwives? Um, I know you mentioned it earlier, how it's changed. But I guess they're in this interesting position um, and, and I know I've heard you say, like, you know, just don't do it. Whereas midwives, like, the whole point of them a midwife was originally to serve women, but then they're stuck in this system. So they kind of feel like they're having to roll out these practices. And I know a few weeks ago I had um, Nigel Leon. He's done a lot of research around the perennial tear bundle and, and interviewing midwives. And they were saying like the surveillance around that was they've never had it before, how much they were felt like they were forced. So they're almost in this position where they're carrying out the abuse of women and, um, how how do you think this has affected the, the midwifery profession? Um, and I guess, how has their role changed? Because it's really significant in the way that they're delivering, I don't know if I'd always call it care, but I'll use the word care for, for the purpose of the interview. How has their role changed? Um, I mean, I think midwives are... I th- I act, and I say often, midwives are currently having a massive identity crisis. This is what I see, is we actually don't know what who we are. We're kind of you know, like teenagers, not quite knowing who we are, trying on different ways, uh, and, and, we, don't, and that we need to really get back to our roots. Um, and midwives have always done interventions. That's actually why midwives were invited to birth, with their capacity and abilities to know when things were heading in the wrong direction and to intervene. And I think we need to own that. And that's why I wrote about that in my book is we're, because we've, I think we've been so um, oppressed, we're an oppressed group um, professionally. We're trying to grasp onto this idea of what a midwife is that never existed. You often hear people saying traditional midwifery, you know, and this, this idea that we're, we're just floating about doing nice stuff, massaging women and <laughs> you know, chanting or whatever, I don't know. Play. we'd actually never that was the gossips the collective culture of women did that for the woman the women who she knew and loved did all of that and I think know, it's so gentle. valuable that you have pulled that apart in your book um that, that you've been very clear with that 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 was the role of the midwives that oversee and they did apply intervention but it was very different to what we're seeing now yeah so and we still need to be able to do that you know if I'm at a 
birth, I need the whole reason a woman's invited me to the birth is not what I'll do at the birth, it's what I can do. And hopefully I don't do the things I can do. You know, most of the time you don't and you look like, you know, you're getting paid for doing nothing because you're sat in a corner of the room. But every now and then you're onto it because you're managing a hemorrhage or, you know, you, you're managing a, a complication. So most of the time you're not doing anything. And I think we need to reclaim that aspect of our practice, which I've called the rights of protection, those interventions, because they're actually needed sometimes during physiological birth because physiology can turn into pathology because natural birth is both physiological and you know, pathological, it's all nature. Um, and we also, when we're working with women in a medical setting who are having interventions, we need to be really good at doing the interventions that manage the complications we're causing with the interventions. So as midwives, we need to reclaim that area of our practice, I think, um, which I think we're, we're, we're trying to push away because we want to be what we're calling traditional midwives, but not really understanding traditional midwives were always accountable to the woman and not just the woman. Mid midwives have always been accountable to somebody outside of their relationship with the woman, whether that's the community, the law, religion, they've always been regulated. So this is not new, it's just who we're being regulated by and how, which is medicine at the moment. You know, that's very much who regulates midwifery is medicine because we entered in you know, medicine pulled us in by using nursing to pull us in. And that's who we get regulated by. So we find ourselves in a situation where we're working in a medical system, but in our hearts, often that's not where we want to be. We see ourselves as midwives who, yes, protecting, you know, the rights of enacting the rights of protection, but wanting to be with women, which is actually the core of midwifery. And, you know, this is what we teach at university. And then the students go out and often don't see it in real life, which is the core of midwifery is with women. That's what the word means. So it doesn't matter who you're regulated by. It doesn't matter where you're working. That's the essence. And if you can maintain that with woman for that individual woman at that moment, or even on a bigger scale in research, is this with woman research? Is this research for women? Um, then that's midwifery. Um, so the core is always, has been there and always will be there but it's how we interpret it. I think we're having a bit of an identity crisis. And I think midwives, you know, in the private practice space are seeing the rise of free birth, which, you know, yes, it is a kind of, it is a kickback in some aspects, but for some women it's not, that's just how they want to birth their babies. And they would always have done that. They, just, they don't want a, med a midwife or anybody else who can do things like that at their birth. So I think midwives are seeing that and they're feeling threatened because they're kind of, well, the women don't want us and the and the system doesn't want us to be midwives and they're caught in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And then, yeah, you've got then uh, midwives that are in the system. That, that That's a whole other range of issues that they're being, like their identity. Yeah, there, there's several little, yeah, cohorts of identity crisis. And I like how you talk about, like, it, it like being that teenager aspect of, you know, who I am I and, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting space, I think, during COVID as well, when we've seen an, uh, like a significant rise in free birth and also women walking away from the system. It will be interesting whether this, and I won't say it's a trend because I, I think there's a cohort of women who just don't know or don't have access to information, but then I think there is an increasing cohort of women that are really wanting to access information and starting to realise that often the system is duping them. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, what from here on in, whether that cohort of women do start reclaiming 
um, childbirth. Yeah, and I think they are. I think there's an increasing reclaiming happening and more and more women actually trusting themselves and trusting their bodies more than they're trusting the external experts. So it's a really interesting time. But, I, I, you know, midwives are, you know, I was, I spoke out a lot in the system, but because that's kind of who I am and I did wait until, well, I did wait until I'd graduated and, you know, had a job and, and could do that. Um, but I can't, I I would rather speak out and not have any friends than not speak out because that's just who I am. But a lot of women, because it's primarily female workforce, and a lot of women are conditioned to not speak out, to be nice, don't rock the boat, don't challenge because that's being aggressive. Be and a good girl. Out, be a good girl. And this whole, you know, estrogen fueled fawning that goes on, fawning to, you know, the medicine and the obstetricians, all of that's playing out. And, you know, while it's easy to, blame and point fingers and get angry it's actually their nervous systems are all over the place and this is their survival so they're doing what they need to survive in the system and for some that will mean they'll assimilate this is in this what i say to the students you know most of you will just assimilate and you'll actually start to believe that women's bodies are dangerous because that's what you'll see all of the time and you'll assimilate and you'll come in you'll do your job and you'll go home and you'll actually feel okay about that it's the ones who don't who see it and feel you know, they're carrying these things out that they don't believe in, that they know are harmful, that it's a really hard place to be. Quite traumatic, really, really I would imagine, mm. when you're contributing yeah. to women's trauma, yeah. Can you talk to in me? The times I've oh, no, go. <laughs> Sorry. The, ti- the times that I have walked home from work crying, wearing my scrubs, have not been the times when there's been a terrible outcome. It's been the times when I didn't speak up and I watched something happen to a woman that was just wrong. Yeah. That's... The, that's you know it's it's awful vicarious trauma yeah finally um rachel can you and and i guess your book has discussed this quite a bit um but i noticed when i decided to start this podcast some of it was because birth hadn't been picked up by any of the feminist movements why do you think birth has been the forgotten feminist issue oh goodness well and it has been because the whole reason we're here is because of the rise of patriarchy and the ownership of women and their bodies and in order to own children. That was the beginning of it all. I think people don't know the her story of birth. And there was a whole wave, wasn't there, of feminism, which was about um, disregarding anything that was female bodied, you know, that we embracing contraception, you know, missing the point that actually medical contraception has all kinds of side effects. And back in the day, um, women the wise women of the village, for example, and, and women would know their cycles and know other ways to manage their reproduction. They were doing it out you know, themselves. They were having abortions themselves. They were controlling their own re- um, reproduction. Now we rely on the medical system to do that. Um, and I think there was a real embracing of medicine as kind of emancipation for, from having lots of children and being, you know, and we wanted to be seen as equal to men um, and that part of that was denying our reproductive capacity you know not all women have babies but a lot of us have the potential to do that and that is actually why we're oppressed is because of our reproductive potential um, and I think that's just not understood yeah great I really appreciate your time today and for those listeners I'm going to pop Rachel's because you've got reclaiming childbirth as a rite of passage um, why induction matters is do you have another book? Why do I think you have another book? 
No, not yet. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I've, are you writing another book, though? Is is it in the pipeline? I, I will do next year. Yeah, it's in the pipeline. Yeah, perfect. And also some of your research on birth trauma and even your blog, Midwife Thinking. I think it's really fantastic resource for, for women to help them decipher the information so they can make good decisions um, that are free of the medical bias. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a shame that, that really care providers should be doing that. Yeah, it's not it's not onto women having to do their research to make decisions. It should be the person offering the thing that's giving you enough information to make your decision. One hundred percent. All right. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to work with me and some of my amazing short courses, I've got pre and postnatal yoga. Online, I've also got hypnobirthing classes for those in rural and remote locations. You can join via Zoom. And I've also got a new course called Mastering People Pleasing to Have an Amazing Birth. It's great for those who are perfectionist or reform perfectionists, that type A personality, and those who've been indoctrinated um, into that people pleasing model. You can head to www.aliciastains.com.au for more info.